I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we continue our coverage of Israel-Palestine, the bombardment of Gaza, the October 7th attack, and related issues. This time we have a double feature. I feel that it's important for me to put some interviews uh, together during this time because a lot of episodes I'm releasing in rapid succession are getting lost in the shuffle and I don't want that to happen. So there's going to be a few double feature episodes coming up here. Uh, On this edition of the show, later on, we'll be talking to Jason Pack, author of Libya and the Enduring Global Disorder, about his recent piece for the publication Foreign Policy entitled... The Road to Middle East Peace Runs Through Doha, in which he argues for Qatar to play a pretty substantial role in post-war Gaza. But before that, we're going to be speaking with Israeli hostage negotiator Gershon Baskin. Gershon has actually negotiated with Hamas in various capacities over more than a decade now. We'll be talking about his experiences doing that, as well as his efforts as a peace activist. He'll talk about how he believes peace can be achieved and what needs to change. He's very critical of Hamas, and he's also very critical of Israel as well. I think he is a voice that you will find very fascinating to listen to. And he's done a lot of work over the years that I think is commendable. So with that being said, let's get right to it with Gershon Baskin. Welcome to Parallax, these guests that I'm very uh, pleased to be speaking with. I think he's been a sane voice in a sea of uh, voices that I think are overcome with anger, um, rage, despair, as all of us are on on some level. But he's been a very uh, thoughtful voice through the tragic events that have transpired both on October 7th and since with the bombing of Gaza. Uh, Gershon Baskin, 
you are a known as uh, an Israeli uh, hostage negotiator, and also you uh, blog for uh, Times of Israel. Maybe for my listeners, you can talk a little bit about your story. How did you become involved in hostage negotiation? Um, the background of it is that I've been a longtime veteran Israeli peace activist. I've been engaged in full-time work for peace for the past 45 years, um, having started out as a young activist living in a Palestinian village inside of Israel, working for the Israeli government and creating a department for education for democracy and coexistence in the Israeli Ministry of Education, running an institute for education for Jewish Arab coexistence. In, in the beginning of the first Intifada, I founded and co-directed a joint Israeli-Palestinian public policy think tank for 24 years. I then wrote a few books and uh, worked for six years on trying to advance commercial-scale solar energy in Palestine. In the course of those events, I have met many, many Palestinians. I ran more than 2,000 working groups of professional Israelis and Palestinians on every issue concerning peace between Israel and Palestine. Uh, and in the course of those events, I've uh, uh, met people from Hamas. Uh, prior to meeting the first person from Hamas who I ever talked to, several months before, Hamas kidnapped and murdered one of my wife's cousins. Um, and I was asked by the family to try and help locate him and save his life. And I was not successful at doing that. And at his funeral over his grave, I swore to myself, if ever again something like that happened, I would do everything possible Several months later, I was at a conference in Cairo on Mediterranean development, a World Bank conference. I was the only Israeli there. And someone from Hamas was at the conference and approached me and uh, suggested that we talk to each other. And we spent about six hours talking over the next two days. We agreed on almost nothing. Um, but I proposed to him that we continue talking and try to create a dialogue group uh, that I would find some country abroad that would sponsor. And, and I did. And uh, he tried to put together a group, I put together a group, but he was encountering problems on his side. <clears throat> so I went down to Gaza to meet him and his colleagues at the Islamic University of Gaza. And we went from the Islamic University to the Hamas Prime Minister's office, this was in 2006, and uh, spent two hours with one of the senior advisors, one of the founders of Hamas, who had actually said he would join the group, but in the end it didn't happen because the Hamas leadership vetoed it. In the interim, I invited this professor, Mohammed Mikdad, to attend a Israeli-Palestinian meeting in Istanbul. It was his first time doing something like that. And then in, in the end of June, when Hamas attacked an Israeli army base and killed two Israeli soldiers and wounded a third and took an Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit, as hostage into Gaza, a week later, the professor called me and said, Gershon, we have to do something. And I said, what can we do? He said, let's try to open up a channel of communication he went to the Hamas's prime minister's office. They called me half an hour later, and that began my 17-year journey of talking and negotiating with Hamas. If I can, how does one negotiate with Hamas? Like, like for instance, how how are you able to negotiate in the case of uh, getting Galid Shalit um, uh, released? Well, look, I, I started talking to them one week after he was uh, abducted, um, Israel was uh, launching a military operation on Gaza, bombing Gaza. Hamas was shooting rockets at Israel. 
um, the Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert at the time uh, was certainly in, in no position that he was willing to talk to Hamas or even negotiate with Hamas even a ceasefire. Um, I knew that uh, if I was going to get some some traction in Israel, I needed to produce some kind of evidence that I was talking to people who were holding Shalit, and that required me to get a sign of life from them. It also meant that I needed to communicate directly with the prime minister, and I knew that there was no way to do that by calling the prime minister's office, even though the prime minister knew me and I knew him. We were not exactly political allies, but I knew that the prime minister's daughter, Dana Olmert, was a peace activist, and I called her and I asked her if she would deliver messages to her father from Hamas, and she agreed. So then I asked Hamas to provide me with a sign of life of Gilad Shalit, that he was alive. And that had two purposes, one to show that he was alive, and the other was to show that I had a contact that led to the people who were holding him. Hamas demanded in exchange for a videotape that I asked that Israelis, 350 women prisoners and minors from Israeli prison. I transmitted that message to the prime minister, whose response was, we don't negotiate with terrorists. We won't release Palestinian terrorists from prison. We won't pay for information. We know he's alive and we hold Hamas responsible. Um, that went on for a period of several weeks while I managed to negotiate them down to one busload of uh, Palestinian prisoners, women and, and children, who would be released to Ramallah, to President Abbas in Ramallah, not to Hamas. And even then, uh, Olmert's response was, we don't negotiate with terrorists, we won't release terrorists from prison, we know that he's alive and we hold Hamas responsible. So I decided then to go down to Gaza, and I met with Ghazi Hamad, who was the spokesperson of the Hamas government, and he had become my primary interlocutor even at that time. Uh, he was the spokesperson and advisor to the prime minister. And I met with him in the prime minister's office and suggested to him that they give me a handwritten letter from Gilad Shalit to his parents that would prove that he's alive and they would get nothing in exchange. And they said, why would we do that? And I said, because that will be the path to opening negotiations. And they liked that idea. And I thought that I might actually leave Gaza that day with a letter, with a letter from Shalit. It didn't happen. I ended up staying several hours. I waited for Ghazi Hamad to come back to me. He told me that he passed the idea along and got a positive response, and a letter would be forthcoming. It took about another two or three weeks before a letter was released, of me calling every day saying, where's the letter, where's the letter? Um, eventually it came after it, it, the soldier's father, Noam Shalit, wrote a father-to-father father -father letter to Khalid Mashal, the Hamas leader who was in Damascus. I got his phone number, his fax number, and his email address, and sent off the letter from Noam Shalit to Khalid Mashal. And two days later, the letter arrived at the representative office of Egypt in Gaza. The following day was delivered to Israel, and we had a sign of life from Gilad Shalit in an open channel. By this time, Israel was also fighting a war in Lebanon, because Hezbollah attacked along the Israeli-Lebanese border and killed some soldiers and abducted two soldiers into Lebanon, and Israel declared war on Lebanon. So we were being rained on with rockets from the north and rockets from the south, and Israel's fighting a, an active war. And of course, there's no room for talk about a ceasefire, which is what Hamas wanted at that time. Uh, but a channel of negotiations happened. Fifty days after Shalit was abducted, the Israelis appointed someone to be in charge of the file of the missing soldiers. I met with him several times. Um, on the day that I received the notification that a letter had arrived to the Egyptians, I notified him. 
The following week, he notified me that the Egyptian intelligence were taking over the negotiations, and then it moved out of my hands into the hands of the official channels, which was fine, and I kept monitoring the situation. But after in December of 2006, six months after his abduction, the Egyptian mediators put an offer on the table, which was to release the Israeli soldier in exchange for 1,000 Palestinian prisoners, 450 from a list made by Hamas, and 550 from a list made by Israel. Five years later, that was the deal that was made. It took five years before the deal was ready to be implemented. But during that five-year period, I remained in constant contact with Hamas while I was being sidelined mostly by the um, Israeli officials who didn't want a direct line to Hamas because we don't negotiate with Hamas and Hamas's line was, we don't talk to Israeli. If I was an official, the Hamas wouldn't talk with me, but I was not an official, which is why they talked with me. But it took five years until the, Israel, the Israelis realized that they had nothing. They had no negotiating channel. They had gone through a German mediator who tried to negotiate. Uh, they had gone through uh, two coordinators on the Israeli side. And when the third coordinator was appointed an active Mossad officer, I contacted him. He knew after studying the file that there was no channel of negotiations open. And when I told him I had direct contacts to the people holding Shalit, he decided to take a chance. And he told me to send messages. I did. I got back answers for him. By that time, they had verified that the contact was real. He got permission from Prime Minister Netanyahu to run the secret back channel. And that's how those negotiations opened and progressed. I, I want to move on to what's happening today, but I, I, I do want to ask you, is is there a process that you have to go through? I, I know you said that uh, Hamas would not talk to you if you were an, an Israeli, an, uh, an official Israeli official, but... Uh, is there a process for building channels and building enough trust to where they'll speak with you? How does that work? Yeah, it, it works by the way that normal people develop trust in any relationship. You get to know each other. You talk about things that are important to you. You talk about life. You talk about family. You talk about dreams and hopes. You know, it was really interesting. I once had a conversation with someone at Harvard who was a back-channel negotiator with Taliban. And we shared stories of how we negotiated with Taliban and how I negotiated with Hamas. And there were so many overlaps and so many similarities in the kind of things that we did and the approaches that we took. And basically, the bottom line is that you develop a human relationship. I was going to say in that regard, that comes out when uh, e even after the October 7th attack. I, I know you were in contact for at least a bit after the attack with uh, Ghazi Hamad. Uh, a senior Hamas official, and I, I think and you actually five other people and five other people in Hamas as well that I've been talking to throughout the war period, except for about a week ago when they stopped communicating with me. I was going to say, even after everything that happened on on the seventh, I believe you asked Hamad if his family was okay because I believe his his house was bombed. Um, and right. I think it it shocks people because that it takes a lot to do that. You know, I, I think a lot of people can't imagine after the attack, someone being able to say, well, is your family okay? Well, you know, when at that time, I had thought that he was in Gaza because... He was in Beirut, yeah. He was actually in Beirut, and I didn't know that. I learned that afterwards. But for several months before that, I was trying to convince him to meet me in Cairo to spend a few days together brainstorming on how we change 
this deadlock that we've gotten into between Israel and Hamas, because it was obvious to me that if we didn't find some way of breaking the deadlock, that things were just going to get worse. Um, we had to find a way of talking about a long-term ceasefire. We had to talk about some way of ending the blockade on Gaza to improve people's lives in Gaza. I was not aware, as anyone else was in Israel, that they were planning this attack on Israel throughout this period when I was talking to him. In fact, from the summer of 2021, I was trying to convince him to spend a few days with me brainstorming. And there was a time when he actually agreed to meet me in Norway. But then uh, a Norwegian official was sent to talk to him and he got nervous and he backed out. So after we exhausted the idea of Norway and I exhausted the idea of going to Switzerland, I proposed to him over and over and over again that we go to Cairo until a few months ago when he told me, finally, I can't, I'm not allowed. I didn't know that I can't, I'm not allowed meant that they were planning an attack. I was not aware when I was talking to Ghazi Hamid and proposing to him that we meet that he had actually left Gaza. He was sent to Beirut, from what I learned afterwards, to be the spokesperson for this war. Um, and uh, I was really angry when I learned that he was in Beirut. When I asked him uh, about his home, is it true that his home was demolished in a bombing? And he confirmed for me that it was. The next question that I said, is your family okay? It was a natural question to ask. He didn't answer that question. Um, we went on to talk about a possible exchange for the women, the children, and the elderly. We had no idea of the numbers of hostages being held. I had collected information on how many women and minors were in Israeli prison, and I was already putting forth ideas on how an exchange could be made. But then a few days later, I got a contact from someone who I hadn't spoken with since 2005. He had been Arafat's advisor on Hamas. We were actually close friends back then. And he contacted me out of the blue and said, hey, you know, I spoke to your friend a couple of days ago. I said, what friend? He said, Razi Hamad. He said to me, you know, he's in Beirut. I was shocked. I had no idea he was in Beirut. How are you able? So so when you when you asked him, you know, how is your family? I, I guess I, I want my listeners to understand how you're able to negotiate and, and talk to these people, because I, I think you have to put aside a lot of emotions after October 7th. How are you able to, you know, keep that sort of uh, calm nature and and ask this man who, you know, was involved in the attack on, on some level, you know, well, how is your family? I guess, I guess my, people are curious about that. My, my primary motivation and what directs me is saving human lives. And my first concern above everything else was getting hostages back home to their families. I know a person who we thought we was, was a hostage. We discovered last night her family received news that she was, in fact, killed, murdered on October 7th. Her body was finally identified. Her burnt body was finally managed to take enough DNA from her that they identified her body. This is Vivian Silver, who is a long-term peace activist, a Canadian-Israeli, someone I'd known for 30 years. She was murdered in her kibbutz. Um, we thought she was a hostage. One of my good friends in Jerusalem has 10 members of his family, three who were murdered and seven are hostages in Gaza. This is personal. Everyone in Israel knows someone who was either killed or taken hostage or knows someone who knows someone. I mean, this is something that touches everyone. And if because of the relationships that I've developed over the last 17 years with people in Hamas, I can save even one of those hostages, 
I, I have no red lines in terms of who I'm willing to talk to if I can save a human life. I can put aside all the rage and anger and disgust that I felt toward these Hamas people in, in, in order to save those Israeli hostages. I have to say that I have a lot of friends who live in Gaza, people that I know, people that I've worked with, colleagues of mine, more than 100 people who I've been in touch with over years in social media. And during the first week of the war, I contacted every single one of them and said, my thoughts are with you, my prayers are with you, and I hope you and your family are safe. Because at the end of this war, with everything that's gone on and all the trauma and all the tragedy, we're going to remain 7 million Israeli Jews and 7 million Palestinian Arabs living on the shared homeland. And we're going to have to face each other and figure out how we stop killing each other and how we live together. I want to ask you, what would it take to get these hostages back? And also, has Netanyahu, I know this is a pointed question, but has he betrayed these hostages? I'll answer the second question first. The state of Israel betrayed the people living along the Gaza border. They failed to protect them. The major responsibility of any country is to provide security to their citizens. And the state of Israel failed those citizens. Our border security collapsed with amazing ease and a lack of sophistication. High-tech border with electronic surveillances and a billion dollars worth of fencing and cement walls collapsed with drones that you can buy on Amazon and hand grenades that were dropped into centralized surveillance points and border crossing gates that were used by the Israeli army to enter in Gaza without anyone thinking that they could be used in the opposite direction with simple anti-tank rockets shot at them and bulldozers to bust them down. And, a, and an army, which over the last two decades has been transformed from the Israeli Defense Force into the Israeli Police Occupation Force, unfit to serve its primary function of protecting Israel's borders, while Israel deluded itself that we can occupy another people for 56 years and believe we can live in peace or keep 2 million people locked in a territory like Gaza with 80% poverty and imagine that we can have quiet. So yes, the country betrayed us, betrayed us by making us think that the Palestinian issue was no longer of consequence because President Trump came along with Netanyahu and showed that we can make peace with some Arab countries while ignoring the Palestinians and their rights. Betrayed because they made the Palestinian issue disappear by creating the illusion that we have no Palestinian partners for peace because we kept a, a weakened Hamas in power in Gaza and an illegitimate Palestinian authority in Ramallah. Yes, directly responsible, and therefore the government of Israel has a moral responsibility to bring all the hostages home. And then in regards to that second question, what would it take to get the hostages back? Okay. There is only one way, there is only one way to get all the hostages back, and that's not going to happen. That's a deal for all for all, meaning all the hostages, and I must comment, we don't know the absolute number of hostages. We don't know their welfare. We don't know how many are alive. Just last night, we saw a video released by Hamas which showed one of the girl hostages who was murdered by them, apparently, claiming that she was killed in Israeli bombing, but it looked very much like she was murdered on the videotape that they released. So we don't know the welfare of the hostages. 
Hamas is demanding to empty the Israeli prisons from Palestinian prisoners. There are about 7,000 Palestinian prisoners, about 559 of them who have murdered Israelis, plus another 130 of the terrorists who were caught in Israel after October 7th. Uh, 30% of the prisoners are Hamas members. Only about 400 of the prisoners actually come from Gaza. So where do we release them? To the West Bank. And this is something which I didn't see the government of Israel accepting. I'm not sure that the people of Israel have the appetite to accept it as well, understanding that many of the people who were released in the Shalit deal in 2011 are directly responsible for the murderous terrorist attack that took place on October 7th. So what they're talking about is a humanitarian release of women, children, and elderly. Just imagine there are babies who are hostages. We have information that one of the women hostages actually gave birth yesterday in Gaza as a hostage. My God, who takes infants as hostages? Who takes people in their 80s who need medicine to save their lives? People with diabetes who, if they don't get their insulin, are going to die. And these are the people that they took as hostages. So they're negotiating the reefs in two channels right now, maybe three channels, in Doha, in Qatar, in Cairo, with Hamas directly and with the Israelis on the other side, for the release of women, children, and elderly. Hamas wants a ceasefire. Hamas wants prisoners released. Hamas wants humanitarian aid. A ceasefire is not as simple as it sounds, because Hamas wants a prolonged ceasefire, and Israel will not stop its military mission of dismantling Hamas's ability to govern and threaten Israel. So that mission will go on, and even if there is a declared ceasefire to release some of the hostages, a ceasefire isn't just you stop fire where you're in place. Israel will have to redeploy to more safe locations because they're sitting ducks where they are in the center of Gaza City and moving further south now. So it's a complex process and it would take days to negotiate and days to create the logistics in order to implement it. And here Hamas apparently wants to prolong the release of those hostages, not do it in one batch, but do it over the course of days, where their hope is that a prolonged ceasefire will increase international pressure on Israel to end the war, leaving Hamas in power in Gaza. I wanted to ask you about the the Palestinian prisoners. Are are all of these prisoners um, terrorists? Are there issues with uh, human rights and Palestinian prisoners in Israel? I I don't know the situation that well. Look, I I said 559 of them are serving life sentences for murdering Israelis. Several tens of them have murdered many Israelis. In addition to the 130 who were terrorists who did the brutal terrorist acts in Israel on October 7th. So there's a sizable number of these people who are serving life sentences because they killed a lot of innocent people. Um, there are others who threw stones at Israeli soldiers or Molotov cocktails. There are others who were imprisoned because they're members of what Israel declared are terrorist organizations. Um, there are others who are about 2,000 of the 700 are being held in administrative detention, which means that they were arrested without trial and imprisoned without a conviction, which is generally what happens when Israel arrests people, we're bringing them to trial with disclosed sources that gave them information on the crimes that these people committed. So rather than putting them on trial and disclosing the evidence, they use something left over from the British mandate that the British mandate used against Jews and against Arabs. We called administrative detention, where they can arrest people for six months at a period of time and renew that six months indefinitely. If you could, could you speak about what needs to be done going forward? Because as you've said, 
uh, here in this conversation, uh, we need to learn how to live together, um, Israeli Jews and Palestinians. And I think you have a great deal of uh, sympathy for Palestinians. And I, I, I just want you to talk about that, uh, the, the plight of the Palestinians and how you think that we can move forward. But there, there are two people living on this land who claim it as their own. And, and as long as each side claims exclusive rights to the land, there's no solution to the conflict. There needs to be a mutual recognition, as I called it, the right of everyone to the same rights. If we demand a right for self-determination, a right for independence and liberation and freedom, we have to understand that the other people living on this land have the same right. And if we deny that people that right, then we end up going in these cycles and rounds of violence of killing each other, and we've been doing it for 100 years. We Israelis need to come to terms that the Palestinian people are, did, are indigenous people on this land, who are connected to this land, who claim that they take their identity from this land and they give their identity to the land. For them, the whole land from the river to the sea is Palestine, and it's all meaningful to them. For Israeli Jews who believe that this is their ancestral homeland, that they were forced to leave and claimed the right to come back to starting in the 19th century and began came, coming back here and built a country, a, 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 a miraculous, a, amazing development to the country of Israel and all of its achievements in the last 75 years. But Israel cannot deny the rights of the Palestinians to be here any more than the Palestinians have the ability to deny the right of 7 million people who are living in this land who claim it as their own, who also claim that they gave their identity the, to the land and take their identity from the land. And this is all complicated, further complicated, by the belief that by both sides that God gave this land to us. We are the chosen people, both according to the Old Testament and according to the Quran. And Palestinians believe that Palestinian that Palestine belongs to them because the Muslims conquered Palestine in the seventh century, and they've been here hundreds of years since. And so we need to overcome our history and learn that we need to look forward. No one can rewrite the narrative of the other. We are going to hold on to our narrative forever. We are going to hold on to our collective memories. We are going to constantly blame the other side for the atrocities that they committed against us. And with all of that in mind, we need to recognize that if we don't look forward and we only look backwards, then this war now of October 2023 is just another chapter in the endless book of mutual killing. So we need a new generation that's going to come along and step up and say no more. And we need to make our leaders pay the price for where they have brought us. And when I say leaders, I mean our Israeli leaders and our Palestinian leaders who have failed us. They have failed to protect us. They have failed to promise us a life of peace and calm and, and equity and respect and dignity. And they all need to go. They all need to pay the price. And we need the world to step in to tell us that we can't do this anymore. We need to cut the bullshit of countries like the United States, 
that for decades mouthed the words of two-state solution and only recognized one of the two states. We need the state of Palestine to be recognized if we expect the two-state solution to be viable once again. We need the state of Palestine to have membership in the United Nations as a member of the community of nations. And we need to sit at a table which is not bilateral Israeli-Palestinian, but is much bigger and includes the neighborhood, includes Egypt and Jordan and Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and Bahrain and Morocco and others. And we need the European Union and Australia and Japan and China and the United States to step up and help us to rebuild Gaza and to step up the Palestinian economy and to build life which is based on building bridges and upbuilding walls and fences to create mechanisms for mutual security where not only Israelis are protected but Palestinians are protected as well where we can live in, an, in a reality where our young people have a future a dream a hope a new reality and that takes a lot of work and a lot of moving pieces and we need the United States to take the lead in it we need President Biden to commit to not only supporting Israel's right to defend itself, but to making Israel understand that it has to give up its occupation and control over the Palestinian people, and to make the Palestinian people realize that they have to recognize Israel's right to exist. And then we can get down to business. Before we close out, I, I have a lot of listeners that are really uh, horrified by the images they're seeing coming out of Gaza right now. And I, I know people... And rightfully so. Rightfully so. Well, I, I wanted you to uh, speak to them because I think people were horrified by what happened on October 7th, but now people are also horrified by the bombing. Uh, what do you want to say to those listeners that are very, I guess, upset right now? First of all, if there are any Israeli and Palestinian listeners, I would say we watch very different pictures of what is the reality on the ground. Israelis see the physical damage of Gaza. We see our planes bombing buildings and we see them crashing down. We don't see the human suffering. The Palestinians, when Palestinians in Gaza asked me, why are they doing this, this to us? I said to them, because what Hamas did inside of Israel, and they said, what did Hamas do inside of Israel? And I described to them the horrors of killing babies, of burning whole families in their homes, alive of, of rape and murder and and massacring more than 300 people at a music festival. And they respond to me, but Hamas doesn't do that. And I said, well, yes, they did. Now what I say is one, what's happening in Gaza is a horrible human tragedy, a catastrophe. Palestinians are experiencing a Nakba again what they experienced 75 years ago of being made homeless. 1.7 million Palestinians, at least in Gaza, have lost their homes. And more than 10,000, probably the number is up to 12,000 today, of innocent people who have been killed. And because Gaza is such a young population, the majority of those people are youngsters, are children, are youth, women, innocent people. This is horrific. It's a war crime. I think it's also to understand that the Palestinian people in Gaza are paying the price of what Hamas did. And Hamas and isn't even there. A lot of this leadership is in Doha. Hamas, they're all there. The Hamas leadership is there. The, the shitheads who are sitting in Doha in five-star hotels and red carpets protected by Qatari bodyguards are making hot statements without taking any responsibility for what's being done to the people of Gaza. They can live a life of luxury while their people are being bombed. But the Hamas leaders underground in Gaza, in their command centers, who have spent more money building tunnels and buying bombs than building shelters for people, they have to pay the price for what's being done to their people, and they bear direct responsibility. One of the reasons to explain the 
the disproportional use of force that Israel is demonstrating in Gaza is because Israel failed to protect its people and the border between Gaza and Israel was breached so easily by Hamas that it creates an existential threat for Israel vis-a-vis the real enemies here, which are Iran and Hezbollah. And if Iran and Hezbollah believed it was so easy to breach Israel's borders, then Israel would be at existential risk. So the message of the extensive bombing in Gaza was not only to show Hamas what we can do. The Minister of Defense yesterday in Israel said that the Israeli Air Force has only used 10% of its power, of its firepower in Gaza, is to send a message to Lebanon saying, you look what's happening in Gaza, we can do this to Beirut, we can flatten Beirut if you dare to attack us. So there's a context for what's going on as well. And what's going on needs to stop. Israel needs to finish off Hamas, and it needs to do it without killing so many individual uh, citizens who are not guilty of anything in Gaza. But I think at the end of the day, the people of Palestine, the people of Gaza will thank Israel for getting rid of Hamas. I can tell you, I know for sure that many of the Arab leaders who made fiery speeches against Israel in the conference in Riyadh the other day are telling Israel behind closed doors, finish them off. Get rid of Hamas. Do us all a favor. We don't want Hamas standing in control of Gaza at the end of this war. I I was just going to add to that. I believe there was even protest movements in Gaza, like the We Want to Live movement. Yes, there were thousands and tens of thousands of people who two years ago organized in protest against Hamas. And Hamas killed their leaders and imprisoned others and smashed them. Any opposition to Hamas was uh, was underdone like that by Hamas. You ask people in Gaza, I get phone calls from people in Gaza all the time because I've helped a lot of people in Gaza and people know me, they know my name and I'm contacted all the time for help, for financial help. And I tell them I'm not a bank, I'm not an ATM machine, I'm not a charity, I'm an individual citizen. Go to Hamas, go to your government. Razi Hamad was the minister of social welfare. I gave people his private phone number and told them to call him. And their response was either they called him and got no response from him, or they said to me, Hamas only helps their own people. This is the reality of the Hamas government there. And Hamas government needs to go. I I wanted to reiterate, so you believe that the the nature of the bombing campaign isn't even, uh, it's not about the hostages right now. You're saying a lot of the disproportionate use of force is really about sending a message to Iran and Lebanon. A big part of it is, it was also to make the Israeli land incursion into Gaza easier and safer. The more that we can remove of buildings and structures and tunnels and, and secret hiding places and booby traps along the roads, when the Israeli troops enter Gaza, the easy it is for the Israeli army to go in and weed out Hamas from the underground tunnels and command centers, which is what they're doing now. I just had two more questions. I promised to let you go. Uh, but the first one is, uh, I've heard you say in other interviews, and I believe a few articles, that Israel was not apartheid like South Africa, but it almost fits a new definition or an international definition of apartheid. Could you speak to that? Yeah, I, I've called Israel a new form of apartheid, because when we just use the apartheid word, people will say, well, we don't have separation between blacks and whites in Israel. It's not that kind of apartheid of South Africa, but it's a new po- form of apartheid where we have two peoples living under essentially one government that controls them all with two different legal regimes, two different economies, two different transportation networks, two different forms of life where one side has clear preference and civil and human rights and the other side does not. So that is not exactly cut and paste, uh, copy and paste 
South African apartheid, but it is apartheid on the basis that there are two people living under the regime of one uh, super body that controls them all with two separate sets of laws, two systems of justice. So it's a new form of apartheid. Very last thing I wanted to ask you, I know you said there's, you know, religious aspects to this, uh, where you have one people that say, no, this is my holy land, and another people who said, no, it's my holy land. But I also think it's worth noting, I think there's a lot of younger people, at least that I've known in both the Palestinian territories and in Israel, that want to get beyond this, that are secular, that just want, you know, basic human dignity. Have you noticed that as well? And, and do you think there is hope for the future? I, I think there's always hope for the future, but in commenting on what you just said, um, sociologically, it's known not only in this conflict, but in most conflicts, that the further away you move from peace, the more religious and conservative societies become. And as we moved further away for peace from the year 2000 with the Second Intifada until where we are today, 23 years later, both Israel and Palestine have become more religious, more conservative, and more right-wing. Um, there are significant numbers of secular Israelis and somewhat secular Palestinians um, who, who, who are not so attached to religious beliefs, but the majority of Israelis are, and the majority of Palestinians are, and this makes the conflict more difficult. It is not a conflict between Judaism and Islam. It has become more and more of a conflict between Judaism and Islam, but at its roots, this is a conflict over territory and identity. Now, a big part of identity is religious identity, but it's not the only aspect of identity here. We need to recognize the right of all people here to be here, and that we all have the same right to the same rights. Well, Kirshen Baskin, I want to thank you. And, and just closing out here, I respect that you've taken a position where, you know, I've heard you say, Gaza is uh, like an open-air prison, but you're also condemning Hamas. I think more people need to understand the suffering that has gone on and the trauma that has been inflicted on both Palestinians and Israelis, because in my view, that, that will be the only thing leading us forward. Look, for most of the last 17 years that I've been negotiating with Hamas, I believe that we could arrange we could arrive at a long-term ceasefire arrangement, what's called in Islamic jurisprudence, a hutna, a long-term ceasefire, on the model that the Prophet Muhammad made with the tribes of Mecca and Medina. It's in Islamic jurisprudence. The founder of Hamas, Ahmed Yassin, talked about the possibility of a hutna. I've tried to negotiate a hutna, which would end the blockade on Gaza and improve people's lives. It's not peace. I've never believed that Israel and Hamas could make peace. But on October 7th, Hamas crossed the line and made it no longer worthy of ruling their people. And therefore, my conclusion today with regard to Hamas is that they have to be eliminated as a movement that controls the territory. And we need to provide the people of Palestine with a new ideology that they have a choice to live for Palestine and not die for Palestine. I want to thank you again, Gershon Baskin, for coming on Parallaxes. I very much appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Next up, we'll be joined by Jason Pack, who I would say comes from uh, a rather centrist position. So I'm, I'm sure he's going to uh, upset maybe my uh, left listeners as well as my right wing listeners. And I do have a little bit of both. So uh, He wrote a rather interesting piece, though, for Foreign Policy entitled 
The road to Middle East peace runs through Doha, in which he argues that Qatar, along with a few other Arab states, needs to play a major role in post-war Gaza and its administration. I think it's a very interesting take. You may not agree with all of it. Uh, we also discussed some other issues related to his work on what he calls the enduring global disorder paradigm. And uh, I think it's a fascinating conversation. I think Jason is a really interesting voice. I actually listened to his podcast, co-hosted by Alexandra Hall Hall, known as The Disorder Pod. And I think it's worth, worth listening to. Uh, you may disagree with uh, Jason on some things, but he really is a voice that I consider uh, to be, you know, someone that you should hear out at the very least. And uh, I really enjoyed speaking with him. So with that being said, let's get right to it with Jason Pack. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I reached out to. Uh, I am familiar with his work on Libya, and he's written recently about the Israel-Palestine situation, the situation with the Israel-Hamas war. Uh, Jason Pack, president of the Libya Analysis Consulting Forum, Firm, host of the Disorder podcast, and author of Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. Uh, he has lived in Damascus, Jerusalem, Tripoli, Beirut, and uh, many other places. Uh, so how are you doing? Happy to be here with you. I mean, given the war, I don't know how well any of us can be doing, unfortunately. That's that. That's a sentiment I've heard on this show a lot. Uh, so you have uh, an article out entitled, uh, Qatar is the key to peace in post-war Gaza. Um, maybe you could just give the, the overview of what you're laying out in this article in the Boston Globe. Sure. Um, I also have a corresponding piece that you can maybe put in the show notes with foreign policy. The road to peace in the Middle East runs through Doha. Essentially, like everyone, I was caught off guard by the war, but I wasn't caught off guard by the fact that the divisive neo-populist policies of Benjamin Netanyahu had so weakened Israel and divided it against itself that it would be prey to external forces, right? That did, that part didn't surprise me. The extent of the breakthrough of the Gaza fence and the atrocities committed, those were more surprising. So what I felt very profoundly since October 7th, in addition to the tragedy and the humanitarian suffering, is that the conversation in the US and the UK is mostly missing the point. It's either hyper short-term or very long-term. Hyper short-term like, oh my God, how do we get the babies from the incubators? How do we get the, you know, the convoy of aid into Rafah? And like, that's all well and good. And then there's hyper long-term. Is it two state? Is it one state? Has the moment for one state been passed? That's not going to be implemented during the war. You can't negotiate that during the war. And then that's 99% of what's being discussed in the news, but also in commentary and also what diplomats are running around having meetings about. So I've proposed a medium term interim solution. And that to me is critical because the way to end any conflict, whether it's the Russia-Ukraine war, 
or this war is with a negotiated settlement. And a negotiated settlement in this case is not going to be directly done between the Israelis and Palestinians, but is going to be done by international diplomacy, probably an Anglo-American-led approach, working with our Sunni Gulf allies to propose some kind of post-war governance for Gaza that can provide security for Israel, humanitarian situation for the Palestinians where they can get towards elections and statehood. And I don't see that happening without involvement of the Qataris and Emiratis and Saudis and Egyptians. So let, let's get into that uh, because I want my listeners to understand why you say especially the Qataris, uh, because, you know, the article is uh, the road to Middle East peace runs through Doha. So, you know, Qatar, I think you're saying is essential to this. And I think I understand why. I mean, uh, you know, this is where a lot of the Hamas leadership is right now, amongst other things. And they're kind of our channel between, you know, the U.S. and, and Hamas and, and negotiations. That's all true. And that's how the Qataris have come to prominence in the mainstream media on this issue. But that's actually not what I'm referencing. Yes, you can't get the hostages back without the Qataris. But let's put that aside. That to me is still a short term issue. I see that we're only in this mess because an antecedent to this is the Emirati Qatari Cold War. The reason that the Arab Spring was botched is that the Qataris were supporting Muslim Brotherhood linked militias in places like Libya, Muslim Brotherhood linked candidates like Morsi in Egypt, and the Emiratis were on the opposite side, supporting anti-Muslim Brotherhood militias, whether it's now Haftar, but in the past the Zintanis in Libya, or the coup by Sisi in Egypt. The reason that the Brotherhood is so polarizing is the Emiratis, working with their Saudi allies, have been waging a regional-wide war against the Brotherhood since at least 2011. But maybe before, right? But certainly since 2011. That's the context where Hamas has spiraled out of control. So many more mainstream commentators, usually on the American Jewish center left, but all the way to the center right, people like Brett Stevens, Thomas Friedman, um, non-Jewish commentators like Stephen Schmidt, they talk about an Emirati, Saudi, Egyptian condominium or arrangement for post-war governance of Gaza, but they exclude the Qataris. The Qataris are seen as, oh, no, no, they work with the Brotherhood. You know, they host the Hamas political wing. We can't have them govern post-war Gaza. And it's quite the opposite. If they're not involved in the governance of post-war Gaza, Hamas will resurface and you will have some kind of jihadi-linked movement, which will take root in Gaza. We need to pull the Qataris away from their prior support of jihadi Salafi Islamists. And the only way to do that is to give them a stake in having a stable post-war Gaza. So in terms of, of doing that, how, what are the strategies uh, in terms of U.S. diplomacy, diplomacy uh, to get us towards that point? Sure. So the U.S. can do a lot, but we can only do it with our allies. Let's just back up and talk about the three groups of solutions that are being mediated right now. In the last few days, Netanyahu has put forth the idea of an indefinite Israeli occupation. In other words, going back to the reality prior to 2005, 
prior to Sharon's Hitnatkut, or disengagement from Gaza. That was the way in which Gaza was governed from 1967 until 2005. On the Israeli right, they are happy with this idea. Sharon, even though he was right wing, his idea failed. We're going to need to take direct control. Let's reoccupy Gaza. I think that this is a non-starter for many reasons, but let's just say that's one of the possible things that may play out. The second is the more center-left Israeli position, Gantz, Lapid, and then the Americans. Blinken has talked about this directly. We're going to need to reinvigorate the Palestinian Authority, and the Palestinian Authority, meaning Mahmoud Abbas and the West Bank leadership, and we're going to implant them in Gaza. That has a lot of problems, not only the corruption in the Palestinian Authority, the lack of legitimacy that they have, and the idea that they would need to be implanted on Israeli bayonets to take over Gaza. And then there's a third basket of solutions, which are some kind of international solutions. Oh, Gaza will come under a UN mandate. Gaza will be governed again by Egypt. Gaza will be governed by a pan-Arab coalition. And there are many, many different iterations of this. My novelty is having a regional solution that solves what I think are the anterior antecedents to this conflict, and that is the emirati Qatari Cold War and the way in which the Iranians are able to operate in a disordered Middle East. Can you delve into that a little more? And are there, I suppose, are there precedents uh, for the solution that you're proposing? I, I am just concerned with the fact that Gaza has, from the end of the Ottoman Empire until now, had, you know, the British mandate, and then the period of Egyptian rule, and then direct Israeli governance, and then the withdrawal, which didn't work because the Gazans were not able to control their own borders or access to you know, import and export. These have all failed. We need a new solution, and I believe it has to be a regional solution. I want to clarify because you know I am not calling for sovereignty over Gaza to be given to uh, a condominium like was done in the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan, whereby from the 1880s until Sudanese independence, a power sharing agreement happened over sovereignty. That might be the example of a pure condominium. No, I'm talking about some kind of suzerainty relationship whereby there's some kind of trusteeship or mandate. And then there are tons of precedents, just like any UN trusteeship or mandate over a territory such as happened in the period of decolonization in many instances. I mean, you have a UN kind of uh, mandate in Libya as the British are withdrawing from 1949 to 1951. You have a range of UN peacekeeping forces in, 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 in other situations. But what I'm referring to is that in Gaza for a period of say five to 10 years, the areas of education and borders and import-export and preventing of dual-use items will be controlled by a pan-Arab grouping. And this may sound fanciful, and I've certainly been criticized, but I think it is actually paradoxically less fanciful than the idea of an indefinite Israeli occupation or less fanciful than the idea of magically having the Palestinian Authority implanted in Gaza. 
So you're you're not talking necessarily about a like a peacekeeping force. This is something else entirely. Correct. It, it's 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 a it is a more old school solution like a mandate, and I think part of getting that mandate set up is going to need to be acknowledging Palestinian sovereignty. The Israelis, by the way, do not, by having done the 2005 Hitnat Kut, say that Palestine or Palestinians have sovereignty over Gaza. Not at all. They claim Israeli sovereignty over the area or they treat it as terra nullius. And what I would like to get in exchange for, you know, the Israelis being able to wash their hands of it and get the Gulf states to put in a lot of money and give scholarships to Palestinian high school students and controls the security and whatever is an Israeli acknowledgement of Palestinian sovereignty over Gaza. So then with regards to how we can, as you put it, make sure that Qataris definitively want to turn the page, uh, when it comes to finding an alternative to the, their current support of this sort of, um, you know, Muslim Brotherhood ideology, how do we get there? Sure, I believe that they've already been turning the page. So the current Emir took power in 2013 when his father abdicated, and there is a trend line of him and his advisors gradually getting free from his father's legacy and trying to work less with Sunni jihadi and Sunni Muslim Brotherhood movements across the region. Yes, there are some legacy relationships, and but the real doubling down of working with Islamist militias in Libya and backing Morsi in Egypt was under his father's reign. Um, since exiting the blockade, and the blockade refers to the period of 2017 to 2021, when the Qataris were blockaded by their Arab Gulf state neighbors in Bahrain, Saudi, and the UAE, the Qataris have really tried to mend fences. And one of the things that they're mending fences about is not really supporting any kind of Salafi movements throughout the region. They're wanting to work more with the U.S. and the Biden administration. Unfortunately, the Republicans in the U.S. and to a lesser extent, the Tories in the U.K. have become partisan actors supporting the Emiratis against the Qataris. This is very much Trump's position. He's a partisan actor in that. I think that we need to bust out of this. The Qataris are medium players, despite the small size of the country, and they need to have a stake. It's really important to point out that they have become the superpower of world mediation. The Ukraine-Russia grain deal was mediated via Qatar. The release of American hostages in Iran mediated via Qatar. The deal that Trump worked on with the Taliban, which, you know, you could criticize the deal, but the Qataris mediated it for us. So all of these deals are being mediated through Qatar. The four hostages who were released in October mediated via Qatar, more hostage releases that I believe are likely to come mediated via the Qataris. We have to have them have a stake in mediating between the Palestinians, any kind of post-Hamas authentic leadership and Israel in the West. Otherwise, I don't see any way that we can mediate this. What would the Emirati, Saudi and uh, Egyptian role be in, in this scenario? 
So I think they need to all work together. And you could say that's pie in the sky. They've had this kind of bizarre Cold War for years now. I think that they want to bury the hatchet and they want to bury the hatchet to pivot against Iran. One of the things I do on the Disorder podcast is I contextualize the larger struggles in a new way. So obviously in the Cold War, we had a communist bloc and a capitalist bloc. Now people say we have an authoritarian bloc with Putin and China and whatever, and then we have a democratic bloc. But I think that's an oversimplification because we work with a lot of non-democratic countries and we have shared interests with them. I see an axis of orderers and an axis of disorderers. So when Trump is in power, the US is in the disordering camp, and that explains a lot of Trump's role. And now Biden needs to work with other orderers. The Qataris have been a swing state where they occasionally work with some disordering actors, like some of the militias I mentioned or with the Iranians. We need to pull them into the ordering camp. So what the Saudis and Emiratis can get out of it is they see themselves as stalwarts for a regional order. Many people might find that order too conservative or retrograde, but it's an order. And we need to pull other potential orderers like the Qataris, but potentially also the Egyptians um, and the Jordanians into a collection of regional orderers. If we have the orderers fighting amongst themselves, and this is what's really happened since the Arab Spring, is we have U.S. allies on opposite sides, right? So the Turkish and the Egyptians fund opposite sides of the Libyan civil war, and they fought each other in Libya. That makes no sense. Turkey is a NATO ally, and Egypt is one of our core regional allies. I want to get all the U.S. allies together on board to create a solution in the region which sees governance in Gaza and confronting the disorderers, Russia and Iran. Could you speak a little bit more to the the concept you have of um, orders and disorders? I, 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 because I, I want to understand it a bit more clearly. Sure. I mean, anyone who's interested in this concept, please check out the Disorder podcast because we are fleshing it out, looking at issues like climate change and tax havens. I had a realization when I was working in DC. I ran something called the US Libya Business Association in 2017 and 2018. And I was, you know, representing small companies that no one might have ever heard of, like Motorola and ConocoPhillips and Pepsi. And it occurred to me because of the way that they were interacting with the Trump administration oh my God, these companies are not necessarily trying to promote order in Libya or even globally, they're trying to engage in market capture. And I experienced that. And then I realized my whole ideas about geopolitics, maybe were wrong. We're in a new geopolitical era. And the classical IR theory of, you know, Eikenberry and Walt and Mearsheimer and Richard Haas, maybe that's out of date and we need a new theory. So what I've come up with, with my global enduring disorder paradigm is a way of looking at the world of regional players who maybe don't care about having an order in their region and global players who maybe aren't just trying to push back against U.S. hegemony to create a new order, but maybe they're trying to create no order at all. And I, I like to explain it with this analogy. 
in the Cold War period, no part of the world was unimportant enough for the Soviet Union to try to order it. It didn't matter if it was Zaire or Cuba. They had a fully formed economic system. It had political and ideological texts like Lenin and Marx, and they wanted to order it. Now, Putin, he doesn't have any economic system. He doesn't have ideological texts. He's not trying to take over Ukraine and have them you know, adopt something called Putinist economics. He doesn't have a manual of how to join the Putinist bloc. There's no, there's nothing that you read. He's just trying to promote disorder. And that's so fundamentally different. And I contextualize the neo-populists, whether it's Erdogan or Orban or Bolsonaro or Trump or when Boris was in power here in the UK as disorderers. They don't try to order the near abroad, and they don't try to order the globe. And fascinatingly, I postulate, and this is more controversial, that the Chinese are disorderers as well. Where are they in trying to fix the five or six most important hot civil wars in the world? Where are they in Ukraine, in Libya, in Yemen, in Syria, in Israel-Palestine? They're absent. They don't care if there's more disorder. I think that they think that they can profit from disorder. So this is a new paradigm of looking at geopolitics as a struggle between orderers and disorderers. So you, you mentioned Erdogan there. So there there are, I guess, countries that are presumably U.S. allies that would, would fit into the disorder camp like Correct. Turkey. Okay. Correct. And I think we need to wean them from that. We need to make them, I mean, Hungary is arguably a U.S. ally as well, right? So Orban is a, is, is, really all about these cultural wars, about the migrants and, and and disordering. I think we need to try to pull our allies away from that kind of disordering because it makes it impossible for us to coordinate about issues like climate change, tax havens, kleptocracy, all the hot money, which is very destabilizing for global politics, I think is part of this struggle between order and disorder. I'm curious, what what of this news that Netanyahu is interested in uh, essentially, you know, making a, I, I guess, a, a permanent security zone, um, you know, or security force in Gaza, uh, does that throw a monkey wrench into what you've been postulating? No, Netanyahu was never going to go for what I'm talking about anyway. Um, it's for a center left Israeli leader who's going to follow Netanyahu. I'm of the belief that if we give tough love to Israel, and that means the US and UK and the Europeans, traditional Israeli allies, work behind the scenes, they work with our Gulfi allies, we come to some kind of solution. You're gonna get the hostages, you're gonna have a ceasefire, you're gonna do this, and then when you withdraw your forces, we're going to do this and this and this, and the Qataris put in a billion, and the Saudis do this, then this will be too good a deal for mainstream Israeli opinion to not accept. One, because it comes with getting the hostages, potentially, inshallah. And then they'll have to get rid of him. And in Israel's multi-party democracy, it's not unlikely that there'll be some kind of movement where even former Likud people are going to just ditch Netanyahu. I mean, he's not popular. He's just trying to stay in power to avoid being persecuted. In regards to the two pieces you've written uh, since the October 7th event, the atrocity, 
what are some of the the key misunderstandings you think people have come away from when it comes to those two pieces that you wrote? Sure. Um, as you can imagine, I am very proud that I'm attacked by both sides. Whenever I put out a podcast or I write a piece and Republican Zionists attack on one lens and then uh, lefty post-colonialists uh, attack on another, I know I'm doing something right. And that's because I'm a real centrist, whatever that means. And misconceptions. Oh, well, I'm giving a gateway for Iran to have influence in post-war Gaza. Absolutely not that. I think that the Iranians are largely to blame for the mess that we find ourselves in globally, not just in Israel-Palestine. They are a major disordering power. Even though they're only a medium power, they're a major disordering power. We should have been containing Iranian influence this whole time. But we managed to fail in Syria, so it's like an Iranian proxy. And we've been failing in Gaza. They armed Hamas. They, they may have known that this attack was coming. And even if they didn't, they've trained the Hamas. And you know what I mean? So we need to be boxing them out. The Obama era negotiations failed, but the Trump maximum pressure campaign also failed. So I can criticize the right and the left here. Obama and Trump equally failed on this issue. So that's one misconception is that I'm really about boxing the Iranians out. And that's why we need to pull the Qataris away from them. Another misconception is that like, oh, I'm a neo-colonialist. That's obviously one that I get attacked from the left. It's not neo-colonialist to have Sunni Arab powers having a role in administering Gaza. I don't, a neo-colonial solution would be the Americans occupy it. Or what is likely to happen, which is that the Israelis will just be, you know, trying to control everything there. And then there's going to be a guerrilla war. Because even if they pacify it briefly, what what did we experience in Iraq and Afghanistan? The more that you have a seen as alien occupying power, the more that there's going to be a resistance movement, which in this case would likely be a jihadi one. There's not going to be a jihadi resistance movement against a Qatari, Saudi, Egyptian condominium with the Emiratis, which is handling the education and giving scholarships to people and fixing the hospitals. Sorry, I just don't see that. So I think that that's another misconception. The other solutions are fairly neocolonial, not my solution. So in regards to what you want people to get out of the conversation we've been having here uh, about your solution to these issues, what's the one or, or two things that you really think people need to hone in on? Well, the first is a meta question. Yes, it's great to show pictures of tortured babies on Facebook and Twitter and debate were they beheaded or not beheaded. And it's very, very sad. And it's it's good to think about the plight of the Palestinians and the plight of the internally displaced Israelis. None of that is going to get us any closer to any solution. And who's to blame and who's more the victim and how many people were killed and body counts. Great debate all of that. But serious people need to be thinking about how does this cycle of violence end? These debates that I see in the marches in the streets and from the river to the sea, this and, you know, blah, 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 blah. None of that is contributing to the solution. I would like to see people marching for a solution for post-war Gaza, where the Palestinians can have some kind of dignity and the Israelis can have some kind of security. And I don't see that happening. So I, I would like people to be thinking about these interim solutions. And the second thing is 
Biden has an opportunity here. I think that Biden and Blinken and even Jake Sullivan have done great work on Ukraine and they should be lauded for it. He may have failed in some domestic stuff, but Biden has been a great foreign policy president. And we need to return to Anglo-American leadership in the old school variety, where we try to make the world a safer place where people's economies are growing and they don't hate America or the West. And a way to do that, to my mind, is to work with our allies, not to give blanket support to Israel and not to give blanket support to some kind of bizarre resistance to Israel. Do you know what I mean? It's got to be something that's going to be good for the Palestinian people and provide security for Israel. And I think that that's doable. But bizarrely, the conversation is mostly not about like actual solutions. Do you think, because I know you don't really necessarily address this in the article, but I, I think you're thinking maybe midterm in these articles. Long term, do you think there does need to be uh, some type of resolution? Uh, I, I guess what, what I'm saying is, does there need to at some point need to be discussions about something like a two-state solution? Sure. I mean, I'm a fan of a two-state solution. I just want to be clear about that. Um I think you need to have it based on the 1967 borders with some small land swaps. It's not going to be so dissimilar to what Clinton, Barack, and Yasser Arafat mostly negotiated at Camp David. There is no other solution to my mind. Some people believe in one state. I don't. Um, I don't think the Jewish Israelis will trust uh, Palestinians you know, to live in their state now with the idea that all of a sudden random people may go to my kids' daycare and massacre them. You know what I mean? And I don't think that Palestinians feel that they can live in a state that's going to be governed by uh, Jewish power and money. Do you know what I mean? I think that good fences make good neighbors. So, so maybe that we're moving towards a two-state solution is going to be acknowledged in some part of this medium term. But you can't get there without intermediate steps. And if you study whether it's Northern Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement, people think that the Good Friday Agreement made peace. No, it didn't. It was a medium step towards getting institutions up and running for other medium-term steps. There were just two more questions I wanted to ask you, and I think sure. they're outside of the uh, scope of the two articles you wrote. So I, I want to note sure. that beforehand. But sure. uh, I think I've heard you in other interviews. I believe it was with Ian Bremmer talking about the need for, um, you know, uh, things like global financial regulations. Um, and I, I'm interested in the topic of regulation because. I think we have a lot of problems, not just with global finance, but also with um, private intelligence firms. And this has come up uh, with certain journalists I've talked to about uh, Israel. You know, you have groups like uh, NSO Group, uh, Black Cube, the now defunct Psy Group. And it seems like there's a lot of private companies that, not just in Israel, but also in the US and elsewhere, that aren't regulated. Does there need to be a change with regards to how we regulate a lot of private companies uh, both in the U.S. and abroad? Sure. I've barely ever met a regulation that I didn't like. And I want to regulate the shit out of things like private security. We need a Viberian monopoly on violence. We've seen what happens in a place like Gaza when you don't have a Viberian monopoly on violence. You can have groups like Hamas doing what they've done. So, yes, I want to have more global governance. I want a NATO for AI. 
I'd like a NATO for climate change. And we probably need a NATO for something like private security and private intelligence, because the proliferation of what are called PMCs, private military contractors, Wagner Group is obviously the most famous of them, but there are many other Russian PMCs. There are American PMCs. These have been very destabilizing actors in places like Libya. And they are also the proxies through which Iran and Russia operate. We tend to think of Iran as only working you know, through the Iranian state, but they have the Al-Quds force. They um, are able to use lots of technology to destabilize. And the, you know, you mentioned the Israeli and American PMCs. Israel and America should be able to work transparently above board. And if they can't, then the thing that they're doing probably is not worth doing. And if we're going to live in a more ordered place globally, we should be able to do what we're doing transparently. Last thing I wanted to ask you, and this sure. relates to something I heard on um, your Disorder podcast. I know you come from, uh, you, you admit this, you say that you maybe have a little bit of an elitist mindset. So I, I wanted sure. to ask you about this. Um, I can understand that viewpoint, but what concerns me is when uh, technocrats uh, can fail. So the, the example I will give here is, uh, someone like Ellie Abrams, who's been a mainstay in the foreign policy world, saying to a congressional committee uh, on foreign affairs 10 days before the Hamas attack that the you know uh, security threat for Israel was Hamas trying to get more of a foothold in the West Bank and, and saying that Gaza wouldn't really be a problem. Uh, so there's times where I, I mentioned that specific example because I think there's times where um, you know, elites can get things wrong. Do you think there's mechanisms for, you know, uh, preventing getting things wrong or cycling in new elites? I wanted to ask you about that. For sure. I mean, I'm not a fan of our current elites, either on the left or the right. And Jake Sullivan said this is one of the stablest periods the Middle East has ever seen in his foreign affairs article that was published seven days before the war broke out. I mean, it's absurd, right? So, when I'm talking about regulations and global institutions, I'm not talking about just entrenching our current elites. We need mechanisms which are foolproof. What do I mean? Mechanisms that create incentives, sometimes market-based incentives, for the correct outcomes. Let me think of something like climate change. People know about these cap and trade, you know, carbon emission taxes. This gives a firm maybe an incentive to produce less greenhouse gases. We can have incentives on AI where we can work with the Chinese potentially to regulate AI rather than having a race. Whoever gets to, you know, the more dangerous AI can use it to make more money or whatever. You know what I mean? These, these zero sum competitions that we now have. So I would like to see a range of regulations. For example, you know, corporate tax. We have a situation where if you call your company based in the Cayman Islands or Jersey or Guernsey, there can be huge advantages from that when actually the business that it's doing is in England or America. I mean, look at the state of Delaware and all the ways in which you know tax is avoided there. So I want to create mechanisms that create good behavior and governance. This isn't a question of turning things over to Elliot Abrams, who I would say is more an ideologue and not a technocrat. I Well, I think that's a fair point too. Um, also, uh, you mentioned the Abraham Accords in your articles. Um, sure. I know that that's something the Trump 
uh, sort of regime has said, oh, we, we, we were bringing about Middle East peace and then Joe Biden messed it up. How would you respond to oh, that's absurd? I'm sorry. I know it is. Abraham absurd, Accords, and that, I want you to talk about that. <laughs> sure. The Abraham Accords sidestepped the Palestinians. As it happened, I've written other articles criticizing it. Obviously, I'm a supporter of peace between Israel and the Emiratis and Israel and the Bahrainis and Moroccans. That was great. And it was very exciting to go to Dubai. I mean, I've been to Dubai many, many times long before these accords, but to go after the accords and to see like, you know, kosher products in an Emirati supermarket and some Israeli tech guys with kippahs at meetings, like it's very interesting. Um, and the Emiratis are becoming players in the Israeli economy and visiting there. So that's fantastic. But it needed to be in the context of acknowledging Palestinian statehood and Palestinian rights and all of that. So let's just do an Abraham Accord 2.0 as part of having the pan-Arab condominium for Gaza, I think that we should have an Abraham 2.0 where the Qataris make peace with Israel and the Saudis make peace. And they do so in the context of guaranteeing Palestinian eventual sovereignty and an eventual Palestinian state. And then correcting the mistakes that were done in the Abraham Accords. Biden could one-up Trump by delivering this Abraham Accord 2.0 where Saudi and Qatar join and the Palestinians accept it. You know, earlier you mentioned working with uh, China on on AI, and I, I'm sorry I'm keeping you longer, but I, I just wanted to address this because no I'm going to have I'm going to have listeners that say, well, didn't Jason say that China's a, a disorder? How could we work with China then? So I wanted you to be able to. Sure. Thank you. Um, we can't just give them the farm and, and we need to work with Russia on climate change and the Arctic. It's not a question of trusting them. You can't trust the Chinese at all. You can't. And the Russians are worse. We need to create incentives. If there is a body whereby they're punished from doing the wrong thing and rewarded for doing the right thing, that creates an incentive. Putin has become the lunatic that he is because we appeased him in Georgia in 2008. Then we didn't enforce the red line in Syria. Then, you know, he annexed Crimea in 2014 and we didn't enforce the Budapest memorandum. So with the Chinese on AI, and I, I first thing is I, I'm not a tech person. So um, although I come from a long line of computer programmers and my, my, my dad and mom are in the software field, I don't understand the technical things here, but I do know that very smart people have thought about AI and they've thought about ways that it can be regulated and that Chinese firms can participate in some kind of transparent information sharing with market mechanisms and it can be done. So when you talk about those incentives, would those incentives also apply to, you said like, for instance, Trump was a disorder when he was in office. So we need to create incentives to also do that for the US when we have a disorder in office here, right? Of course, we need to make sure to protect our own democracy. I mean, one of the things that is very problematic in the U.S. system is that every four or eight years, there's the ability to just change the direction of our foreign policy. You know what I mean? And in a way to tear up things like the idea that Trump could tear up the Iran deal, whether you like the Iran deal or not. And I think it had a lot of problems with it. No, that was something that the U.S. had already done. Do you know what I mean? Like we need to cook things into international law in ways that they can't just be changed every four to eight years. Um, think of the instability in the UK, for example, when Liz Truss was prime minister and the pound tanked, and then she proposed other things and quasi-quartang and the mini budget and 
him getting tossed out and then Richie Sunak and Jeremy Hunt having to go in the other direction. This is very, very destabilizing. One of the point of having international institutions is to create a predictable business and political environment. And we've been moving in the opposite direction. The global enduring disorder um, is something that affects the world powers like the US and UK and Europe, uh, you know, as much as it, it, it affects the Middle East. And so we need to create institutions that help create continuity. In closing, how can my listeners uh, keep up with your work and listen to the Disorder podcast with uh, yourself and Alexandra Hall Hall? Well, thank you so much for that. They can type Disorder and search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. And you can sign up to our newsletter on the NATO and Global Enduring Disorder Foundation. And uh, I hope that uh, we get to talk again sometime soon. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Jason Pack and Gershon Baskin. As always, if you appreciate the work here, I do at Parallax Views. Please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. You, dear listener, will keep this show going. I only have uh, one other advertiser, the great Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window. Everything else is paid for by you. So if you want to keep hearing this content, I really, really, really need you to support me on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Parallax Views. One last time, that's Patreon.com slash Parallax Views. Sorry, I have to pitch you on, you know, just supporting me because it really is necessary at this time. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerilax View to Parallax Jerilax View with Jerilax The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.